0: O God of unchangeable power and eternal light, look favorably upon thy whole church, that wonderful and sacred mystery, and by the tranquil operation of thy perpetual providence, carry out the work of man's salvation, that things which were cast down may be raised up, and that all things may return into unity through him by whom all things were made, even thy Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, we are in Matthew chapter 17 today. So if you have your Bibles, please open them up, A new chapter. And an exciting event, the account of Jesus and the transfiguration. So let's go ahead and read through it. We're going to read through the first 21 verses today. And after 6 days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came from the cloud and said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their face and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision, until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. And the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. Well, we come today to a mountaintop experience. And I don't know if you've noticed, but as you read through the Scriptures, through the Old and through the New Testament, as you make your way through, one thing becomes very apparent. Great events frequently happen on mountains. This is where we get the expression mountaintop experiences. Uh, You'll notice that, for example, in the Old Testament, that it was on a mountain that Moses first encountered God in the theophany of the burning bush. It was the giving of the law on Sinai, Mount Sinai. Elijah and the prophets of Baal, that great contest between the God of Israel and these false gods, this took place where? On a mountain, on Mount Carmel. Those of you who've been to the Holy Land, you've actually been to the site. Where did Jesus' temptation take place? The Gospel tells us that Satan led him up to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the earth and said that if you will simply bow down and worship me, I will give you... All of this, the Lord's temptation took place on a mountain. If you go to the Judean wilderness, you can actually see what is known as the Mount of Temptation. Well, today we come to the greatest mountaintop experience of all, and that, of course, is this experience in which Jesus took with Him Peter, James, and John, led them up a mountain, and before their eyes, He was absolutely transfigured. I say this is the greatest of all the mountaintop experiences because years later, Peter, who was an eyewitness to the event, would hark back to this event in particular. At the time that Peter was writing his epistles, he was an old man. Uh, He was facing persecution and the prospect of martyrdom uh, for his leadership of the Christian church in those days. And tradition holds that Peter was indeed executed by order of the Roman authorities in Rome, as you know, crucified upside down. And so these are some of Peter's final words that he's writing. And he harks back to a moment in time to gain encouragement and and strength to face the difficult days ahead. Now, if you were Peter and you were facing the end of your life and you needed to hark back to some great event in order to find strength, to find encouragement, the wherewithal to press on and to finish the good fight, the good race, what what was the event that you had witnessed that you would hark back to? Most of us would hark back, if we were Peter, to the resurrection of Jesus, wouldn't you? I mean, that, that was the event, that was the keystone of the Christian faith. You remove that and the whole thing falls apart. But what is interesting is that in his later writings, when Peter is harking back to an event that will give him strength and courage to face the days ahead, he harks back, in 2 Peter chapter 1, to this event on the mountainside. It's this encounter with Jesus, this Vision of Jesus shining in resplendent glory, the majesty, the weightiness of God that gave him the courage and the strength to press on. Now at the very least, what that teaches us is that this is a very significant event. Not all of the disciples, of course, experienced it, only these three, Peter, James, and John, but nevertheless, for Peter, this was a life-changing, world-changing experience. A true mountaintop experience. One commentator has said that if he thought that God continued to operate in this way on mountaintops, he would have become a mountain climber. (laughs) And yet there is a sense, as I said, spiritually speaking, in which God does still bring us to mountaintops, where we gain an entirely different perspective on life and on the things that matter. So it's uh, an event that is worthy of our time, worthy of our study. Well, we're told that after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now, there are some things that we simply don't know about this story. And one of the things we do not know is the exact location of the event. It may have been significant, but we don't know precisely where it took place. The traditional site that has been given, and if you go to the Holy Land, this is where many groups go to visit, is Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor was a somewhat high mountain, at least for that part of the world, not as impressive perhaps as our Rocky Mountains or the Himalayas by any stretch of the imagination, but nevertheless, for this part of the world, it was not an insignificant mountain. It was about 1,900 feet above sea level. But there's a problem with its location. We are told that the events that immediately precede the transfiguration took place where? Where? in Caesarea Philippi. Jesus had led his disciples up to that area. We said it was an odd place for him to lead them, but he led them up there for a very specific purpose, to pose a question. Who do men say that I am? And then he got very personal and he said, who do you say that I am? And it was there against the backdrop of all that paganism, all that syncretism that Peter gave the answer, you are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God. And we're told that it was after this, Presumably shortly after this, after six days, we're told, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a mountain. The problem with Mount Tabor is that its location was not near Caesarea Philippi. So that's the problem with the traditional site. In addition to that, we also know from archaeology that at the time that Jesus was operating in the region of Galilee, Mount Tabor actually had a Roman fortress on the top of it which if you're going away to an isolated place to be with your disciples, probably that would not be the place that you would go. So even though Mount Tabor is oftentimes designated as the traditional site for the transfiguration, it may not have actually been there. Another place that has been suggested is Mount Hermon. Now Mount Hermon would have been the highest mountain in all of Israel. It's 9,232 feet above sea level. It's at the headwaters of the Jordan River. Those of you who've been with me to the Holy Land, if you've been to Caesarea Philippi today called Banyos, you've actually seen Mount Hermon. Part of Caesarea Philippi was actually carved out of Mount Hermon. It was an impressive place, to say the least. I've been there in the spring when it is warm in Caesarea Philippi and there's still snow on the top of Mount Hermon. So this was indeed a high mountain. And many people suggest that this was the case. One of my dear friends is Bishop Alden Hathaway, and we have a running debate about the location of this event. And uh, he says that on one occasion he went up there to the top of Mount Hermon and he heard God speak. And he said, God told him this was the location. <laughs> now, well, how do you argue with that? You know, it's hard to argue with bishops to begin with. They don't listen. And second of all, I just, you know, what do you say to that? Oh, okay, well, God didn't tell me that, but he told Bishop Hathaway that. So at any rate, he is absolutely convinced that the the, the actual place was Mount Hermon. I think there are problems with Mount Hermon as well. And one of the reasons why it's problematic for Mount Hermon is that we're told that when Jesus came down off the mountain, the first thing that happened was that he encountered Jewish religious leaders. And one thing is very clear about Caesarea Philippi, that was beyond Jewish territory. It was up in Gentile territory. I said that's one of the reasons why it was an odd place for Jesus to take his disciples. So Bishop Hathaway's vision aside, I'm not entirely convinced that Mount Hermon is the actual location because Jesus would have traveled some distance in order to encounter Jewish religious leaders. The religious leaders would not have been in that region at that time. Others have suggested, and this may be the most likely spot, Mount Myron, which is 3,926 feet above sea level, and it is about halfway between Caesarea Philippi and Capernaum, where Jesus was headed. So it may be that Mount Myron was the actual site. But the most that we can say is that it is a likely site. We do not know for certain. Now, why didn't the Gospel writer tell us that? I think because as far as the Gospel writer is concerned, the location is insignificant. He's not concerned with where this happened. He's concerned that it happened. I was just having a conversation with Brian McGreevy um, before this class, and we were talking about the fact that in Jerusalem there are two sites that are oftentimes designated as the place where Jesus was resurrected. If you've been to the Holy Land or to Jerusalem, you've probably been to both of those sites. Uh, one, the traditional site, the oldest site, is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. The other site is the Garden Tomb, what is sometimes referred to as Gordon's Calvary. Now, both of those sites have been designated as places where Jesus' resurrection took place. Now, people sometimes ask me, which one do I think is the actual site? I don't mind telling you, I think it's the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Now, I'll give you a little bit of background uh, about this. Um, This is sort of a sidebar, so just, you know, hope it'll whet your appetite to go to the Holy Land someday. Um, But the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is an ancient site. Um, It is not what people expect when they go to the Holy Land. I think sometimes people can be either just enthralled by the Holy Land or they can be a little turned off, maybe not by the Holy Land in general, but by Jerusalem in particular. Because oftentimes what we have is this sort of Sunday school picture of these places and where these events took place. Now part of that is due to the fact that we're Americans and we've been to places like Colonial Williamsburg, (laughs) which are reconstruction of 18th century towns and everything looks pristine and this is the, if this is not the way it was, this is the way it should have been. And so you go to the Holy Land and what you quickly discover, especially when you go through the streets of Jerusalem, it is nothing like that. First of all, people still live there today. It's not cordoned off. It is a dirty, noisy kind of place. And the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is the traditional site where Helena actually designated the place where Jesus was crucified and where he was resurrected, one of the things you realize is that it is this huge, massive building, and it's just sort of a, a ramble. It's got multiple levels, four or five levels, many of which are underground. And the site of the crucifixion and the site of the resurrection are in the same building. And they're not as far away from each other as you might imagine. It'd be like walking from this building over to the church. And for many people, they imagine the tomb to be some distance from the place of crucifixion. And so you go there, and it's it's not really what you imagine at all. And so it's a struggle. So many people go to the other place, which is known as the garden tomb. Now let me tell you a little bit of background about the garden tomb, because it's fascinating. Back in the 19th century, when the British controlled that portion of the world, the commander of the British garrison in Jerusalem was a man by the name of Brigadier General Gordon. Uh, Gordon was a Victorian. He was a devout Christian. He was a student of the Bible. And one of the things that disturbed him greatly about Jerusalem was that Protestants really didn't have access to these very important religious sites. Uh, The area was controlled by the Coptic Christians, by the Eastern Orthodox Church, and to some degree by the Franciscan friars. And Protestants were sort of cut out from these places. They weren't allowed, oftentimes, to have access. They certainly weren't allowed to perform religious ceremonies in these sites. And uh, Gordon was really put out by that. It kind of turned him off. Furthermore, one day he was reading the Scriptures, and he realized that the Scriptures said that Jesus, when He was crucified, was crucified on a hill outside the city wall we have that hymn there is a green hill far away outside the city wall that, that was the idea and one of the things that he noticed was the traditional site for the crucifixion of jesus church of the holy sepulcher was within the city walls and, and so gordon came to the conclusion that that couldn't be the actual site praise be And so he put his engineers to work, you know, soldiers can't be just lying about. And so he gave them jobs, they began to dig around, and sure enough, what they found was what he believed to be the true side of the crucifixion, which had been lost to history. It was a place along a major thoroughfare going into Jerusalem, which was significant because we know that that's where they would have crucified people as an object lesson to others. In much the same way that people like Steed Bonnet were hanged down at White Point Gardens as a, as a warning to anybody that would be coming into the port. And so we know that, that Jesus was crucified along some major thoroughfare. Well, that would have been very significant. Furthermore, he discovered that the place near there, which was a place of execution, actually looked like a skull. If you see the pictures of it today, you can see the nose and the eye sockets and so forth. It actually looks like a skull. And Jesus, we're told, was crucified on Calvary, Golgotha, the place of the skull. So, two out of three ain't bad. And here's the third one. There had to be a burial place nearby. And sure enough, they discovered first century tombs very close to the site. So at that point, Gordon designated that the true spot. And so there became this great tug of war that took place between the Protestants. If you were a Protestant, you went there. And if you were a Catholic or an Orthodox, you went to Holy Sepulchre. It doesn't look like anything you would imagine it to look like. But Gordon's Calvary looked like it. They put up plants and they made it into a beautiful garden. And there was a tomb there with a stone that had been rolled back and so forth. And and we normally go to both of those places when we go to the Holy Land if we have the time. And the reason why is because I do believe Holy Sepulcher is the original site. What Gordon did not know was that at the time of Jesus' crucifixion in the first century, the site of Holy Sepulcher was outside the city walls. The walls were moved. He didn't know that. And furthermore, it is the most ancient site. But I always take people to the garden tomb as well. Why? Because it is a place where you can actually pause and meditate and consider. It is a lovely spot. It does give you a picture of what a first century tomb looks like. And one of the wonderful things there, there are English evangelicals that run the place. And one of the things that they do is they always give you the gospel. You're allowed to celebrate Holy Communion or do a teaching, but they always wanna do a teaching first. And so they bring you in and they always do a very good job. But I love the way they end it. They said, we don't know if this is the actual site or if that Holy Sepulchre is the actual site. But there is a sense in which it really doesn't matter because whether you go here or whether you go there, what you are going to discover is an empty tomb. I think the same is true when it comes to events like the Transfiguration. Don't get so hung up on where these events took place. It may have been on Mount Tabor, unlikely, it may be on Mount Myron. But the gospel writer is not particularly concerned about where it took place. He's concerned that it took place. And it was an event that, as I said, had a life-changing effect upon these three men. So there's some things that we do not know. Here's what we do know, is that Jesus led them up some mountain, somewhere, and before their eyes... Verse 2 said he was transfigured so that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Some, some other versions of it, the other Gospels, Luke's version, for example, says shined, they were shining brighter than any fuller or bleach on earth could bleach them. The Greek word here for transfigured is the Greek word metamorphu. It is the word from which we get our term metamorphosis. So Jesus was changed Uh, a similar Hebrew word not a Greek word but a similar Hebrew word is used to describe Moses when Moses came down off the mountain having had that encounter with God we're told that his face was shining like the Sun so great in fact that he had to put a veil over it for the people couldn't look at him. now in the case of Moses of course that was a reflected glory it was the result of an encounter with God Almighty in the case of Jesus Jesus himself is shining. It's not a reflected glory. It's not the light of the moon. It's the light of the sun itself. Jesus is shining in resplendent glory, so great we're told that his face shone like the sun, his clothes whiter than any fuller or bleach on earth could bleach them. This is what we call the glory of God. The glory of God, the majesty of God of god something else happened here as well verse 3 and behold there appeared to them moses and elijah talking with him now we don't know how it is that they knew it was moses and elijah i don't know maybe moses was holding the ten commandments you know but whatever it was maybe it was an internal witness of the holy spirit but these men recognized that this was moses and this was elijah And that's significant because these are the representatives of the two great parts of the Old Testament. Moses was the lawgiver. Elijah was the great prophet. And so these two figures are standing there conversing with Jesus, representing these two old parts of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. What does it represent? It represents the fact, because they're talking to Jesus, that He is the fulfillment of those things. He is the fulfillment of the law. Everything that the law required, everything that the law demanded, all of the restrictions, all of the demands, they found their ultimate fulfillment in Him. And all of the promises, everything that was anticipated in the prophets, finds their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Incidentally, that is the only way you and I are capable of keeping the law. How good do you have to be in order to get into heaven? Somebody gave the right answer already. You're well-trained. Who's teaching you people? I don't know. but (laughs) That's absolutely right. How good do you have to be in order to get into heaven? You have to be not just perfect. You have to be as perfect as God himself. That's how good you have to be. Now, somebody said, well, that's perfect. It's not perfect. Because we have our own human standard of perfection. And most of the time when it comes to human standards of perfection, it's God grading on the curve. Good enough to pass muster. It's, you know, a passing, maybe it's not even a passing grade. It's it's a 4.0. But what that does is it puts God in the same category as us. God is in a completely different category. He is H-O-L-Y, holy, but he is also W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy other. So how good, hold on, I'll come back to you. How good do you have to be? You have to be as good as God, your father. Now, nobody can do that. There's only one who is ever as good as God Himself, and that was who? It's Jesus Christ. And it's in being united to Jesus Christ by grace through faith. That's the essence of salvation, by the way. Union with Christ. We are united with Christ so that on the day of judgment, when God looks on us, what He does not see is us with all of our faults, sins, fallenness, and blemishes. When God looks on us because we've been united to Christ, what does He see? He sees His Son. And it's on the basis of seeing His Son that He declares us just. Not on the basis of what we have done or failed to do, but on the basis of what Christ has done on our behalf. Now that is the essence of salvation. And so when the Scripture says Jesus is the fullness of the law, and Jesus says, I've not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, it doesn't simply mean that He keeps the law. It means that He is the embodiment of the law. And it doesn't simply mean that He is the fulfillment of the prophets. It means that everything that the prophets speak about, everything, finds its ultimate fulfillment, its wholeness in Jesus Christ. We'll come back to that in just a moment. What it does mean is that the law is not abrogated. You know, sometimes people say, well, in the Bible you have two different gods. In the God of the Old Testament you've got a God of wrath. In the New Testament you've got a God of what? Love, mercy, grace, forgiveness. I want you to understand the scriptures. When I say the scriptures, I mean from Genesis the whole way through to the book of Revelation. Bear witness to the same God. There's no different God in the Old Testament and a different God in the New Testament. It's the same God. And there's a God of justice in the New Testament. In fact, get this. There are more references to God's judgment in the New Testament than there are to his love. Did you know that? And there are many references to God's grace, mercy, forgiveness, and pardon in the Old Testament. In addition to his references to the love and the justice of God. So Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of these things. The law is not abrogated. It just means that all of these things find their completeness in Christ. Here's something else that's interesting. And Mara, I'll come back to your question in just a moment. But here's another interesting thing. Not only... Are Moses and Elijah there with Jesus, but we're told they were discussing something? Now, Matthew doesn't tell us that, but Luke does. In Luke's version, it says that Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus and they discussed his departure, which was to take place at Jerusalem. The Greek word is an interesting word there for departure. The Greek word is exodus. It was Jesus' exodus, his departure, which he was about to fulfill in Jerusalem. Well, what was Jesus' departure? What was his exodus in Jerusalem? Very nice to have these little... I didn't plan that. It was just up here, so there you go. (laughs) It's the cross. And what's interesting is that you'll notice... That, that is exactly what Jesus had been talking about in the verses that immediately precede. That's what we talked about all last week. That's what Peter had a hard time wrestling with. What? that Jesus was going to have to go to Jerusalem, be betrayed at the hands of His own people, crucified and on the third day rise again. Well, when they go up and they have this mountaintop experience and Jesus is shining in resplendent glory, they experience the kadosh, the weightiness of God, and they meet Moses and Elijah who are bearing witness to the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the Scriptures had foretold and the fulfillment of the perfect keeper of the law. What is interesting is they're having a conversation about His what? About His departure. about His death on Calvary. That's why I pointed out to you last week, and it bears repeating, the cross is absolutely essential. Even here in this mountaintop experience, central to it all is this message of Jesus Christ. Jesus being glorified. But where was Jesus most glorified? Not here on the mountain. Where was Jesus most glorified? In the very place that we would say we can't imagine anybody being glorified, Jesus was most glorified there on the tree, on Calvary. That is where justice, God's justice and God's mercy met and kissed each other, there on Calvary. That's why Paul said, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philip Edgecombe Hughes, who was a priest in the Church of England, taught for many years at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, and was on the staff of one of the former rectors here, Jim Hampson, when Jim was up there in Philadelphia. Philip Hughes is a great scholar. He has since gone to glory. But he wrote this about this event on the mountain. He said, In Christ is the yes, the grand consummating affirmative, to all God's promises. All God's promises are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the horn of salvation raised up for us by God as He spake by the mouth of His holy prophets which have been since the world began. The covenant promises addressed to Abraham and his seed are realized in Christ's single person. To the believer, therefore, Christ is all, not merely as fulfilling a word of the past but as Himself being the very living word of God. Faithful and eternal. In Him all the fullness of the deity dwells. Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption are to be found in Him alone. There is nothing which is not in Him who is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Why is it essential for Jews to believe in Jesus Christ? You know, some people say, well, I think God treats the Jews a little differently than He treats the Gentiles. I'll be honest with you, I don't see anything in Scripture that indicates that. Jesus makes it very clear there's only one way to the Father. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Why must even Jews believe in Jesus Christ? Because the only way to get into heaven is to be as good as your Father. To be as good as God Himself. And there's only one in whom the fullness of the deity dwells. There is only one who fulfills the law and the prophets perfectly. And that is who? It is Jesus Christ. And all of that, all of that is conveyed, you see, in this experience on the mountain. Which helps us to understand why it is then that Peter's suggestion that they build three booths is really so absurd. <laughs> and we'll come back to that in a minute. But, Mara, you had a question? It was more of an observation, actually. Elijah is the prophet that heralds the advent of the Messiah. He does. We'll get to that in a minute, because you'll notice when they're coming down the mountain, that's the question. They said, well, Elijah had to come first. And they still have an empty of the They do, waiting for Elijah to come. Of course, Jesus' whole point is that Elijah has come. And he's come in the person of John the Baptist, and they didn't recognize that. Martha. One question. You mentioned in Kedosh, yes. the kadosh. Yes. It yeah, it's a Hebrew word. I just kind of blurted out, sorry. But, but now I, have, I wrote down my make to kind of what that means? It's translated in our versions as glory, the word kadosh. Um, but the Hebrew really means awaitiness. I don't know what you imagine when you imagine glory. Um, Glory, we we think, you know, sometimes I think we imagine pageantry. We imagine the state opening of parliament, which the queen walks down there in her crown and all of her royal robes. We Well, that's glorious. And it is glorious. But when the Jews talked about the glory of God, it was that plus, plus, plus. There was a sense of weightiness, a a heaviness. And and when I say a, a heaviness, I mean just uh, an importance to it that is lost oftentimes in our trivial understandings of glory. And, and that's what they experienced. There was just this, this tremendous magnificence, but there was also this sense of, my goodness, the whole weight of history coming down upon them at that moment. And so I think that's what's being suggested here. Well, at any rate, uh, Peter, as you know, Having experienced this, that weightiness, that glory, that majesty, Jesus shining in resplendent glory. Seeing Moses and Elijah, two great heroes of the Old Testament. Every Jewish man would have been absolutely in awe of the opportunity. Don't you wish you could go back and meet some great figure from American history? Maybe shake hands with George Washington or Lincoln or something like that. We think, oh, that would be a great opportunity. Well, that's what it was like for these men. Moses and Elijah were heroes, giants of the faith. And so what does Peter do? He says, Lord, if you'd like, I'll build three booths. I know you're the carpenter and I'm the fisherman, but this time I'm I'm willing to give it a a shot. I'll, I'll build three booths for you, three shelters for you. And the scripture indicates it was really a foolish saying. Luke says that he didn't even know what he was saying, which was sort of typical for Peter, oftentimes saying things that he really didn't mean or didn't understand completely or fully. And that was one of these occasions. Now, there is a sense in which we can understand Peter doing this. I mean, we've just said that he experienced the glory of God. And, and, and that must have been overwhelming. I, I don't think there's any way that you and I can understand it. In fact, we we're told that a great cloud came and enveloped them. That crowd would have been reminiscent of the Old Testament Shekinah glory of God that came and rested upon the temple that showed God's presence I'm sure that would have been an image that was running through their minds. There was was sensory overload when they were up there on the mountain. And so there is a sense in which we can understand Peter sort of blurting out, wanting to do something rather than just sit there. But I say it was really an absurd response on Peter's part because he actually gets reprimanded for it. You know, Peter got reprimanded earlier by Jesus. When he said, God forbid, you must never go to Jerusalem and die, Jesus had reprimanded him severely. Get thee behind me, Satan. Well, here on the mountain, Peter also gets reprimanded. This time, however, we're going to see he gets reprimanded by God himself, the Father. What was the problem with what Peter was suggesting? I think two things. First of all, what Peter was trying to do was to capture the moment. Capture the glory. Capture the majesty. We want to do that, don't we? Sometimes we want nothing but mountaintop experiences in life. And sometimes we judge the truthfulness of a religious experience based upon how it makes us feel. If it makes us feel good, if we feel like we're on top of the world, it must be legitimate. And if we just don't feel it, well, then perhaps it's not really legitimate. Have you ever had that experience before? I mean, there are times, let's be honest, C.S. Lewis talks about this in Mere Christianity. There are times when you come into church, perhaps on an Easter, and and, and the music is absolutely glorious. I mean, it's, it's over the top. And the preacher actually happens to be on that day. You know, he's not always on. I mean, every now and then we hit a foul ball, but, but, I mean, this is a grand slam. I mean, it's something else. And furthermore, everything looks good. The flowers look spectacular. It's a glorious day outside. You just hit the lottery the day before. I mean, everything's going your way. And you come in and you think to yourself, of course God is alive. How could anybody not believe that he's alive? But then there are those other days, don't you, when you come into church, and it sounds like the organist is playing with boxing gloves. And the preacher couldn't preach his way out of a paper bag if he tried. And the flowers are wilted. And the people are unfriendly. And you think to yourself, is God really alive? See, your emotions can affect the way you feel about things. But regardless of how you feel about things, that doesn't change reality. It doesn't change reality. And that's one of the reasons we can give thanks to God for mountaintop experiences. But we shouldn't cling to mountaintop experiences. Because Jesus himself said, life is going to be an odd mixture of highs and lows. Jesus said, in this life you will have tribulation. He didn't say, in this life you may have it, it's likely you're going to have it. He was emphatic. He said, you will have tribulation in this life. It's not always going to be mountaintop experiences. This is sometimes the danger of certain movements within the church. They place an emphasis on experience. And we live, as you know, in a very experiential and a very emotive age. And oftentimes people will judge the legitimacy of something purely on the basis of how it makes them feel. And your emotions, let me just say it, are very fickle things. Here's how C.S. Lewis put it in Mere Christianity. I think it's a word to the wise. He said, Now faith, in the sense in which I am here using the word, is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. For moods will change whatever your view of reason takes. I know that by experience... Now that I am a Christian, I do have moods in which the whole thing looks very improbable. But when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. This rebellion of your moods against your real self is going to come anyway. That is why faith is such a necessary virtue. Unless you teach your moods, your emotions, where to get off, you can never be either a sound Christian or even a sound atheist but just a creature dithering to and fro with its beliefs really dependent on the weather and the state of its digestion. (laughs) Consequently, one must train the habit of faith. What Peter was trying to do was to capture the moment, hold on to the glory. And it's understandable, but it's not realistic. You can't stay on the mountain so if you're always looking for that next mountaintop experience, my friend, you're going to be disappointed. Give thanks to God for the ones that you experience, but realize that with the mountains, there will come valleys as well. Incidentally, that point is made very clear in this story, too. So I think that's one of the problems with Peter. He wanted to capture the moment. Here's the other problem with Peter's suggestion. He was suggesting that they build three booths. By building three booths, one for Jesus, one for Elijah, and one for Moses, what was he doing? Well, he was, in effect, putting Jesus on the same level as Moses and Elijah, wasn't he? Three booths for you three great guys. But the problem, you see, was that Jesus was not on the same level with Moses and Elijah. They were there to bear witness to him they were there to talk about what he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem this wasn't about Moses and Elijah I understand that they were great figures but they were there to bear witness to the greatest figure Jesus Christ and that is part of what the disciples were not yet getting remember we said last week there are two things that you must know in order to be a Christian you must know who Jesus is and you must understand what he came to earth to do right They had a sense that Jesus was the Messiah. That's what Peter said. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But I don't think he fully understood what that involved. So he was willing to exalt Jesus, but he was willing to put Jesus on the same level. My goodness, that's like putting somebody on the same level as Washington or Lincoln. Uh, That's a great thing, except that they actually may be greater. That was the point that was being made Here. And that's why I said what happens is that Peter gets a rebuke. And it's a rebuke that doesn't come from the mouth of Jesus himself, it comes from the mouth of God. This is a severe rebuke, it comes from the Father himself. What does the Father say? And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That's what Jesus was saying, or Father was saying to Peter. You need to listen to him. Stop speaking and start listening. You know, oftentimes with us, it's just the opposite, isn't it? Oftentimes we see people that are indecisive, and the one thing we say is, just just don't stand there. What? Do something. What the Father says is, just don't do something. Just sit there. Just listen, Peter. And let me say, sometimes in the Christian life, that is important. Sometimes it's more important to listen to God than it is to just get out there and do things. We Americans like to be doers, and there is a place for doing. But there is also a place in the Christian life when before we do, we need to be still and know that He is God. We need to be still and we need to listen. And if Peter had been listening to Jesus all along, he would have understood what was happening there on the Mount of Transfiguration? but he hadn't been. And so this was the Father's way of reprimanding him, the Father's way of saying, you need to listen. It's interesting, these are words that are very similar to what we find in Matthew chapter 3 at the time of the baptism. At that moment, when Jesus came up out of the water, Brian preached on it this past week, we're told that the heavens were torn in two, the Father spoke, the Spirit descended like a dove, and what did the Father say? This is my beloved son, same words, with whom I am well pleased. Here, this is my beloved son, but you need to listen to him. And I suggest that what the Father said to Peter applies to us as well. You and I need to listen. Sometimes we do all the right things, but we do them for all the wrong reasons. And sometimes our efforts fall flat as a consequence. Are we listening for the voice of God? That's the question. Now, where do you hear God speak? Do you have to go up on a mountain like this? Do you have to have this kind of traumatic experience in which you experience the weightiness, the glory of God? Is that the only place where God is going to speak? Through signs and wonders, lightning and thunder? It's really interesting, Peter, years later as I said, speaking to the church, recalls this event on the mountain, but he does it in a very curious way. Keep your finger there in Matthew, and I want you to skip ahead in your New Testament toward the right to 2 Peter, close to the end of the New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 1. And this is what Peter says to the church. He's speaking to believers. He knows that the time of his own departure, his own exodus is fast arriving. He's going to be executed there on the road leading out of Rome. And so these are some of his final words to the church. And here's what he says to them. He said, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. What's that a reference to? Well, he goes on to say, For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard His very voice born from heaven, and we were with Him on the holy mountain. So it's a reference here to the transfiguration. Now, if you're one of Peter's audience, you might say to yourself, well, Peter, that's great for you. You were there on the holy mountain. You got a chance to hear God speak, but but we weren't there. We don't get a chance to hear God speak. Peter says, not so. Very next verse, verse 19. And we have something more sure. More sure than an encounter with God's glory on the Mount of Transfiguration? Yes, Peter says. And we have something more sure the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. You have something even more certain than an encounter an emotional experience on the mountaintop. You have the prophetic word, and you say, well, what do you mean the prophetic word? What, what, what does that mean? Peter goes on to explain. Verse 20, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You and I have a more certain witness than the one that Peter received there on that mountain. What is that more sure and certain witness? What is it that shines like a light in a dark place until the day spring dawns in your heart? What is it? It's the Scripture. Scripture. That's the prophetic word, the Bible. It is the most precious gift on earth. You know, sometimes when you go to the Holy Land or you go to Greece, you go into these churches and you see these relics. I saw the skull of St. Titus. It wasn't looking real good when I saw him last time, I'll tell you. <laughs> they have all these relics, the shin bone of Peter, or the, you know, the, the finger of St. Catherine, or whatever it is. And and we venerate these things and we build tabernacles over them and we light candles to them. I'm here to tell you, you have the most sacred relic on earth in your hands. It is the holy word of God, which Peter said is a more sure and certain witness. Study Shakespeare, he's worthy of your time and your effort. Study Wordsworth, he's worthy of your time and effort. Study C.S. Lewis. He's worthy of your time and your effort. But if these things take a higher priority or they replace the study of God's Word, my friends, you are not listening to God. And you need to stop doing and start listening. If you want to hear God speak, God speaks sometimes through the words of the preacher. Thanks be to God. He speaks sometimes through the music. Praise the Lord. But the one place where we know God speaks with a sure and certain witness, it is in His Word. That is why we have made the study of God's Word and the preaching of God's Word a priority at St. Philip's, because it is the only thing that makes a church strong. It is the only thing that brings revival. It is the only thing that empowers us for ministry. And that's what Peter needed to understand. Well, what is interesting is this. It was a great experience they had up there on the mountain. And as I said, it's the human tendency to want to stay up on the mountain. But what I want you to notice is that Jesus did not stay up there on the mountain. What does the Scripture say and what does the Creed say every Sunday? For us men and for our salvation, He did what? He came down. He came down from heaven and He came down from that mountain Let's look at verses 14 again and following. And when they came to the crowd, that is when they came down from the mountain, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. What a contrast. Up there on the mountain, The glory, the majesty, the weightiness, the Shekinah glory of God. And they come down off the mountain into the valley, don't they? As I said, you can't stay up there. Life is filled with mountains, but it's also filled with valleys. And they come down off that mountain, and what's the first thing that they find? A boy who is possessed of a demon. Some translations say this translation says he was afflicted with epilepsy. And the Father had brought him to the disciples, and the disciples could not help him. Reminds me of the woman who had the chronic bleeding disorder. You remember the story where Jesus was on his way to Jairus' house to raise Jairus' daughter from the dead or to heal Jairus' daughter? And he encountered the woman with the chronic bleeding disorder who we're told had suffered for many years under the care of physicians. They could not help her. Nobody could help this boy And if Jesus had remained on the mountain, if Peter and James and John had remained on the mountain, that boy would never have been saved. But God, because He cares for us and because He loves us, comes down from the mountain. And let me tell you something. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you follow your master's example. You need to come down off the mountain, and you need to get into life with people. You need to get to know them and their struggles and their hurts and their failures. And you need to minister to them because you have a word more certain. You have what the, the hurting, dreadful world definitely needs. So Jesus comes down off the mountain. One of the great depictions of this is the Transfiguration by Raphael. You're probably familiar with the painting, it's been done into all kinds of engravings, and uh, you can get copies of it. It's a magnificent painting. It was started in 1517 by the High Renaissance artist Raphael. Uh, He was commissioned by Cardinal Giulio de' Medici um, to build this, uh, to paint this painting. He was rivaling the Pope in Rome when he ordered that the painting be done. It was uh, started, incidentally, in the same year that Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of Wittenberg Cathedral. Raphael would work on it for the rest of his life until he died in 1520. And at the time, the painting was unfinished. But enough of the painting was done that we have a sense of what the artist was trying to convey. In the painting, you see Jesus up there we know it's the Mount of Transfiguration. You almost get the impression it's the Ascension because he's sort of hovering above the scene. But remember, this is a very romantic notion. But we know that it's the Transfiguration because there are two figures flanking Jesus. Who are they? Moses and Elijah. You see Moses there holding the Ten Commandments? That's how we know it's the Transfiguration. You can see that white cloud behind Jesus and you can see Peter, James, and John there falling on their face. The other disciples are down the mountain. But what is fascinating is that at the bottom of the painting, what do you see? You see this boy, afflicted, possessed, and the other disciples trying desperately to cast the demon out, and they cannot do it. It's a magnificent depiction. The artist got it just right. And the only way for this boy to be saved is that one who is up there in glory, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, comes down into the depth of human suffering and touches him and sets him free. And that is exactly what God has done. So if you've had your mountaintop experiences, give God thanks for them. But realize that you can't stay up there on the mountain. You need to come down. It would appear the other disciples had not made it the whole way to the top of the mountain. You know, it's 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 an artistic rendering. I don't know that it's obviously it's not meant to be a realistic picture. It's all meant to be symbolic. I couldn't tell you. I think it's Jeff Miller and Brian McGreevy over there on the left. (laughs) I think that's that's who it is. We're close, but we're not there yet. Well, as we close out this section, let me just put some final questions. To you, Because these are all the questions that Jesus was trying to convey to the disciples in this section of Matthew's Gospel. He wanted them to understand who Jesus is. Well, let me ask you the question, do you know who Jesus is? It's not enough to say Jesus is a great prophet or a great teacher or a great moral exemplar. Have you come to realize that Jesus is the Christ, the promised Savior, and that you need Him? And He's the Son of the living God. Do you understand what He's come to do? Namely, to die on the cross in your place. To take the place, to take the punishment that you deserve. To be the propitiation for your sins. You know what the word propitiation means? It means to turn aside wrath. It means that the punishment that you deserved was laid upon Him. In the ancient world, there was a practice. Families of royalty could not be touched by commoners. They were sometimes educated with other children, but if they misbehaved, they could not be taken out and they could not be whipped like the other children could. And so there was one child in the classroom who would be designated the whipping boy. And if the royal child misbehaved, the innocent child would be taken out and in the presence of the royal child, he would receive the punishment that the royal child deserved. That's where the expression the whipping boy comes from. I want you to understand that on the cross, Jesus Christ became your whipping boy. The punishment that you and I deserved, Isaiah says, was laid upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. Do you understand that? And having understood that, do you understand that Jesus, having gone to the cross, you are now called to take up your cross. That's what Jesus says at the end of the previous chapter. He says, anyone who would be my disciple must first, what? Deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Are you taking up your cross and following him? Are you listening to him as he speaks? Are you reading, marking, learning, inwardly digesting the things of God? Are you men and women of the book? You know, Paul describes the word of God as a sword. He says, take up the full armor of God and take the sword of the Spirit. Swords are wonderful weapons, only if you know how to use them. If your opponent knows how to use a sword and you don't, the sword's not much good to you. The sword is only as good as the hand that wields it. Are you listening? Do you know the Scriptures? And are you willing, having been so armed, to come down off the mountain into the brokenness, the frailty of human life? Are you willing to roll up your sleeves and get your hands dirty in this work of the Christian life? That's what the disciples had to learn. And it's what we have to learn as well. That's what it means to be the people of God. Not up there on the mountain but having experienced the mountain coming down into real life and bringing those epileptic, demon-possessed, broken, hurting people into the knowledge of Jesus Christ that they might be set free. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this story of the transfiguration. We thank you. For all the lessons that it conveys to us. Grant that we, having come to know Jesus Christ, might take up our cross and follow Him. Having experienced the mountaintop of forgiveness, grace, mercy, and love, might be willing to come down into this broken, hurting world and share that with others. And Lord, if we have not come to know Jesus Christ personally, then grant us the enlightenment of your Holy Spirit, that we may come to see what Peter, James, and John saw, Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, firstborn of the dead, the Alpha and the Omega, God Almighty. It's in His name we pray. Amen.